And I'm Aiden. And you're listening to I Read the News Today. Oh, boy. We are not journalists. Pundits. And we are not carnival workers. But we do read the news. And we're here to talk about the shit that's going on. Today is June the 3rd. What are we talking about, Aiden? So it is the time of the season that the Supreme Court is releasing its last decisions of the Supreme Court year. Is that the official official name? The, the Supreme, Supreme Court year? Have you read your constitution? No. Yeah. Article 3, Section 9. Supreme Court year. Yeah, and, and God proclaimed it shall be known <laughs> as the Supreme Court year. It's one of two mentions of God in the constitution. Oh, what's the other? Endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. I have All a right. slight cold. <clears throat> I don't know if you can hear it. I can. Okay. I don't know if you can hear that my voice is also fairly scratched up. Yeah. What particular case did you want to talk about with the Supreme Court uh, wrapping up their Supreme Court year? We are going to uh, talk about Gundy v. United States. The decision has not been announced yet as of today. What is interesting about that one? So Gundy v. United States is a challenge that rests on the idea of the non-delegation doctrine. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So the non-delegation doctrine is a theory that exists basically in any government that has a separation of powers structure, whereby one of the branches of the government cannot delegate one of its powers to another branch. Okay. Is that a thing that is a common occurrence? I, I feel like very often we have some amount of legislation done in outside of Congress. Yes. So what exactly, what, what are the limits on that? So the, the case law as it exists is the Congress cannot delegate any legislative power to either of the other branches without specifically saying that they are doing so and specifying who in that other branch can exercise the power. Okay. The non-delegation principle specifically comes from Article 1, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, correct? Yes. That is, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Yes. So the key words there are all legislative powers. Yes. In other words, only Congress, that is the House of Representatives and Senate, mm -hmm. can pass laws, federal laws yes. in the United States. Yes, only Congress can make the laws. Like the, the very simple the, the, the very simple way to explain it is Congress makes the laws, the executive branch, the presidency carries out the laws, executes the laws, and then the judicial branch interprets the laws. But the interpretation of this that is cause for this specific case, which we'll get into the specifics of the case, the interpretation is saying that not only is it that the Congress makes the laws, it's that only they yes, make the laws. Yes, only Congress makes the laws. And it's also saying that no one can help in making the laws is is what what the those proponents who are, of the non non uh, delegation doctrine say yes is there anything else you want to say about the non delegation principle or doctrine prior to talking about this specific case and its implications 
I mean, just I think it's important to mention that it's it's not a widely held idea. Okay. In the United States, um, it was last like the the last time that it was used to limit one of the branches' power was in 1935 okay. over the New Deal. An oil conservation law that was passed as part of the New Deal gave a certain legislative power to the executive branch, and that was struck down by the Supreme Court. That was uh, Panama Refining Co. versus Ryan. And that's really the last time that this principle has actually succeeded in a judicial challenge. And on the other hand, if we had a strict interpretation of this this section of the Constitution, how often do you think we would be breaking that strict interpretation currently? I would say fairly often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have no sort of data to back that up. Yeah. But that's something that Congress does a lot of the time to make its job easier is it gives the executive branch the power to figure out the ex- the exact specifics of how the law is going to be implemented. In that case, let's go into specifically the case of Gundy versus the United States. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the plaintiff, Gundy. Well, so uh, Gundy is Herman Gundy, who is a uh, sex offender who violated the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act, which is also known as the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. He committed a sexual assault in 2004, and the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act created a national sex offender registry, among numerous other things, but it's strange to me that that didn't exist until 2004, but all right. Nationally. Okay. Yeah, that's that, that's a national registry. Makes sense. Yeah. And so he committed a sexual assault in 2004. The law itself, the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act, was passed in 2006. And it created a national sex offender registry, and it required all sex offenders to register under that registry. The the text of the law itself specifies that for any convictions prior to 2006 when the act was passed, the attorney general shall have the authority to specify the applicability of the requirements of the law to sex offenders convicted before it was enacted. Okay, and so that's really the big yeah, big thing there. That's that's what this case hinges on. So the question is, does Congress have the ability to to get to, help in terms of making a law? Help is maybe not the best word, but it, it's not a bad word. <laughs> but I don't think it's terrible. To, yeah, it does to, does to have have to delegate the the responsibility in in this case. One might argue that it isn't really making the law. It is simply a um, a regulation yeah. within the law. Yeah, it's a, it's a regulation that – and the so the specific case we're talking about, the Gundy case, it rests on the regulation that the attorney general put in place through the terms of the, the law itself. So the law delegated that power to the attorney general, and the attorney general chose to create a regulation 
I'm going to stop you there because okay. I think that we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves <clears throat> because we haven't quite yet said what Gundy was was charged with here, and we haven't said how his how this case came about, mm-hmm. uh, which I think we we need to do to give a little bit of background. The the sexual assault that uh, Herman Gundy committed was while on supervised release for a previous conviction in 2004 he met an 11 year old girl served her cocaine and raped her yes so that's the sex conviction that's the sex conviction this case is only tangentially related to that however i mean it's it's cause and effect yeah it's 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 heavily related it's related but the the fact of the matter is that this is actually a case about the registry rather than the fact that he was a sex offender. Yes. It's not about the sexual offense. It is about another yes. another yes. offense. So as a sex offender, since 2006, since the Adam Walsh bill, sex offenders need to register in any state that they work or live in. Yes. So... While at a halfway house, Gundy failed to register mm-hmm. as a sex offender in the state of New York. Yes. And so the issue is he became a sex offender prior to the passage of the bill. Yes, yes. And Congress left it up to the Department of Justice mm-hmm. to determine whether or not people who had already been charged prior to the passage of the law would be held to the same law. Mm -hmm. Why is this specific case notable enough to get to the Supreme Court? We've talked about in the past about what it takes to get a case seen by the Supreme Court. What is it about this case that is important enough to get there and important enough for us to be talking about it. So the it's the broad interpretation of the non-delegation principle that I think makes this interesting because there's a potential for this to be a landmark decision that radically alters how the how the Congress is able to operate. Um, so the, basically the Using the broad interpretation of this principle, the non-delegation principle, Congress wouldn't be able to delegate any of its authority. So the they wouldn't be able to give the executive branch any authority to determine who would be responsible for implementing the laws that they pass. Yeah. So that's potentially very dangerous because... The U.S. the the U.S. federal government depends on a bureaucracy that does a lot of the work. They are not elected. Like the attorney general is not an elected position. The attorney general who was charged with creating this regulation that ultimately Herman Gundy failed to abide by is not an elected position. And there's this there's this idea in libertarian and certain right-wing right-leaning circles that this federal bureaucracy being unelected is unaccountable to the people and that's scary. Yeah. So this is a, a term that many people would associate with conspiracy theories. Yes. Which is the deep state. Yeah. This is a concern that echoes those concepts but this is 
a little bit removed from conspiracy, just in that there are people who do not like the fact that non-elected officials have any any control, even minimal, over the decision-making of the government because they feel like they have no control over those people. Yes. Yeah, and the one article that we read, which is um, it's from Politico, it's written by Todd Tucker, it's titled How a Sex Offender's Case Before the Supreme Court Could Bring Down the Administrative State, identifies groups that have filed amicus curiae briefs in support of Gundy's case. Among others, they are DC.org and the Gun Owners of America, which is a group that notably considers itself to be more in favor of gun rights than even the NRA. Which is impressive. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a sampling of the, the kind of groups that will support this position. Yes. I, I do think that those are some of the, the extremes. Yeah, it's the extreme examples that the article highlights. In uh, another article, I think progress article by Ian Milheiser called How a Strange Supreme Court Case Involving Sex Offenders Could Gut the EPA. This case talks a lot about the Federalist Society, which is a, a very large conservative organization. They have many branches. Advocacy group. Yeah, yeah ad- advocacy, think tanks. They're pretty large. They're a large conservative group. Conservative yeah. or organization. Yeah, it's debatable exactly how much of a presence they have within the wider conservative movement, but they are a powerful conservative lobbying group. Yes. Yeah. What this article specifically talks about, which is part of the reason why there is a conversation about whether or not this will pass, is that Neil Gorsuch has ties with the Federalist Society, has in fact, in previous cases talked about uh, the non-delegation principle and and has written various bench opinions on the non-delegation principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this being, he's he's been in the court for only around three years. This is... A little over two. A little over two. Uh, this is part of the reason why he, why we are talking about this Yeah, I mean, as long as we're on the federal society, um, just not to kind of skip by this, but the justices that Donald Trump has nominated to the Supreme Court have come from lists that he's gotten from the federal society. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of their their bigger issues. Yeah. The public face of the Republican Party, conceptually, would not be the the people supporting the rights of sex offenders, but the fact that that this is a way to attack delegation mm-hmm. within Congress is why a lot of Republicans and conservatives are looking so heavily at this case. Yes. Yeah, and that's what the the Politico article uh, by Todd Tucker that we read says, um, quote, a post-Gundy nation may be one in which Congress faces even higher hurdles than those it already faces. Instead of merely having to get a majority of the House, a filibuster-proof Senate majority, a veto-empowered president, and aggressive courts on board, lawmakers may have to spell out in excruciating detail how agencies have to do their jobs. Imagine already overwhelmed lawmakers having to micromanage thousands of scientists and financial regulators in between constituent services and fundraising. Not a recipe for success. That was, again, from the 
Todd Tucker Politico article. Yes. I think that we've established what this case is. I think that we've established why it is important. What does the government look like if the Supreme Court does determine in a in a broad way? I, one, yeah, we, so, I mean, that that quote that I just read, that's really the doomsday scenario. Yeah. Like there's, there's a much more narrow ruling that could be handed down that simply says that the passage of the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act that delegated the authority to create that regulation to the attorney general was unconstitutional. And beyond that, it has no bearing on other cases. Yeah. That's a, that's a very narrow ruling that they could potentially issue. But the broad ruling is what Todd Tucker talks about um, in that article is Congress, which is able to make its job easier by delegating certain authorities for creating regulations to the executive branch, can no longer do that and has to spend not even not, not just more time writing the laws, but then more time getting support for each of those individual things. You, you would really need to specify every little thing. Yes. And with specifics, of course, create more more debate. Mm -hmm. And with specifics also create longer periods of time to get anything done. Yes. I, I want to point this out, uh, although it may seem rather obvious, this wouldn't be... This wouldn't be saying that they could not delegate to staff and others within within the congressional offices of, of each congressperson. Yes. That is that is not the point of this. In fact, most likely what would happen if this was determined, I, I'd have to imagine the staffs of of Congress and Senate would attempt to increase doublefold. I don't know how how anything would be possible without that happening. So yeah. I, I know that that those positions are probably taxing enough. I don't know how how Congress would function under these these guidelines. Yeah, or not guidelines, but interpretation of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about this? We've talked in in other segments about the fact that it is important to have each branch of the government be insulated to some amount mm. from each other so that there can be checks and balances. Do you think that there is a, a concern that there is overlap? I, I want to explore the concept of these deep state positions without looking at it as a conspiratorial, just, just overlooking at it because it is a term used by conspiracy theorists. Yeah. I, I don't think that, I don't think it creates a huge issue within our government to have members of the executive branch writing regulations for laws that Congress passes. I don't think that's a that's something that's supremely negative. Now, if and this is an extreme example, but should the Supreme Court in deciding this case determine that John Roberts is now the president? then that's that's a delegation of authority. Well, that, well actually, that we got to cut that. That's not a delegation. That's a oh, well. taking. Is there a level of delegation of authority that we should be concerned about? I can't. I mean, I can't put. I, I, I can't quantify that. Wait. But 
I think there, I don't think it's insane. I don't think it's unreasonable to, to think that the legislative branch should be the only ones writing the laws. Well, I actually have a, an example. Mm -hmm. Would you consider the Patriot Act to be potentially a delegation of authority to the executive branch? Potentially, yes. And I mean, that's, that's what the, that's what a lot of the arguments against it have been. And do would you, do you feel that that was potentially concerning delegation? Potentially, yes. Yeah. Giving the the executive branch control over whether or not the country goes to war or or acts of war or warlike acts mm-hmm. as uh, just to cover all bases. I think that is potentially a problematic delegation. So I, I don't know that I I do think that there is a limit to what should be delegated. Uh, I think that having separation of powers is a good thing. But I agree with you. I don't think that it makes sense to function, to try to function without any kind of support. Yeah. I think that treating them as three completely separate pillars that aren't allowed to overlap in any way. I think that, for example, this, this regulation, I think can definitely be considered an executive act. I, I think that they made the law. They simply allowed some determination to be made down the road. Mm-hmm. They specified who was going to determine it. And I think I personally, on a, not on a legal perspective, because I don't really think that I can give that, but on on an ethical perspective, this is functioning government. And that's the precedent that exists now. That's what you have to do. If you, if the legislative branch wants to make that delegation, they have to be very specific about it. Yes. In the so, way that they were with the passage of the Walsh bill. So with the, the Walsh bill, if they had not designated the Department of Justice, if it, they had left it open and said, uh, someone will figure it out, then, and, 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 then, and put that in congressional legal. Yes, exactly. And then had, had the, Department of Justice at that point designated themselves and said, oh, we'll figure it out and made the determination that would have been an open and shut case. No, you cannot make that determination. And that determination would have been unconstitutional, correct? Yes. Okay. This case in particular is couched in so much very heady sort of political science and political theory that it's hard to it, it's hard to imagine that permeating the wider population. Uh, I was interested in this case in particular just because it reminded me of the Citizens United case, where when when that was decided, it was immediately a um, a landmark case, and if this is decided with a broad ruling, that's going to be a land. It's going to be a landmark case as well. If Citizens United said corporations are people, Mm -hmm. then this would say that the, the law can only laws can only be made by Congress. It it seems like that would be a very 
bold decision for the Supreme Court to make. Yeah, and it, I in, mean that would over, a, that would overturn precedent. Way. Yes, and that's that's something that the Kate, that the court is hesitant to do, but does. Yeah, I, I believe that I saw an article uh, the other day that that listed all of the times that the Supreme Court overturned their own precedent, and you know we'll see we'll see how this progresses, and we'll probably. I don't think that many people are hearing about this at this stage, yeah. but I think that it's a very good thing to be aware of because you will be hearing about it if this does, in fact, not get overturned. Yeah. Uh, if it gets overturned, I think that, you know, business as usual, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. All right. I think this will be a good opportunity for us to go into a little bit of a break and then we'll All go into right. some... Uh, Stranger News. Cool. Two weeks later. Hi, this is Lowell. So the part of the episode that you just heard and the remainder of the episode was actually recorded over two weeks ago. Uh, it was recorded on Monday, June 3rd, and it is now Thursday, June 20th. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but we actually now have a decision for the Gundy versus United States case. The Supreme Court affirmed the previous ruling in a five to three vote, saying that the United States was in the right, and therefore, as I said earlier, not much changes because of that. It kind of confirms that the way that our country runs will continue to run that way. Interestingly enough, it was a five to three vote. Justice Kavanaugh took no part in the consideration or decision of the case. And Gorsuch, Roberts, and Thomas were in the dissent. And they are the, the, the more conservative members of the court. So that is what ended up happening with the case. And now I want to talk a little bit more about the future of the show. So as we've said in weeks past, we really appreciate your support and please subscribe, rate, review, and also please tell your friends. Please tell your friends about the show and get them to listen as well. We have decided to move to a bi-weekly schedule, so once every two weeks instead of every week just because that fits better with our schedules right now. We also want to set a solid date for that. So in the past, we haven't really given you an exact day that it's going to come out, but we are going to now commit to every other Wednesday as, as our release date. Uh, so our next episode will be out on July 3rd. We'll then be keeping to a... Uh, every other week schedule. So then following that would be July 17th. We appreciate your, your listening and we want to make sure that we have enough time to put into each episode. And with that, here is the rest of our episode. So Aiden, I have a nice, strange article for you today. All right. I see it's from the Times of Israel. It is so it, this article is from the Times of Israel, so it is a fairly local uh, story, not 
a, a world story. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind reading the, well, first off, so that's an extra headline, I believe, is what you're, is, is that what you're referring to? I'm pretty sure that the, the piece in red is actually the name of their weird stories section on their website. Oh, okay. Okay. So that is unorthodox methods, which I really like is a delicious <laughs> pun that you can eat with a spoon. It's so thick and juicy. So then if you wouldn't mind reading the headline. All right. So, um, I'm not sure what this second word is. Just read it. Jerusalem Haredi protesters flee after women strip down to bras. How's my Hebrew? I mean, it was not in Hebrew, so you're fine. I, okay, I'm not familiar with that word. Uh, I, it's a it's a ultra orthodox portion of the Israeli society. Okay, it's, it's similar to Hasidic in in the U.S. Okay, Haredi are a similarly very orthodox section of the population so quick criticism from yeah. the times of israel very unclear headline are they protesting the haredi or are the haredi the protesters the haredi are the protesters okay so the ultra-orthodox males of the haredi were demonstrating and protesting against eurovision having a show in Israel on Shabbat. So the... I mean, that is pretty outrageous. They... Because I know all about Shabbat. So the Eurovision Song Contest mm -hmm. final in Tel Aviv was being hosted on Sat a Saturday, which is, of course, in Jewish tradition, the day of rest. However... I'm well aware. However, of as as many would also know... A large portion of Israelis are not extraordinarily religious and are actually fairly secular in their lives and do not celebrate Shabbat. Observe Shabbat. Do not observe Shabbat. That works. If you're celebrating, you're not resting. So... God did not party, party hard <laughs> on the seventh day. I, I don't know. In, in, it says specifically... He partied too Torah. hard the night before, so he had to rest on the next day. Yep. The Haredi organized a protest outside of Eurovision and were, in fact... I'm kind of starting to realize why this is a really good article. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Is this... this so what the, the women did... Yeah. Is this, for lack of a better term, the Haredi kryptonite? It, it really is. It turns out that the kryptonite for ultra-Orthodox Jews is actually boobs. Or bras. Bare skin of any kind, yes. really, but uh, yes. So they were organizing into what was turning into a fairly riotous protest. And there was a collection of Israeli women realized that how better to get the blocked roads cleared of these ultra-Orthodox men than to take off their shirts, mm -hmm. which the protesters were then forced to leave the area due to the prohibition against looking at women in dress deemed immodest. Mm -hmm. 
what what happened very immediately after, which we can see in this uh, in this Twitter post, they disperse quite quickly, and within twenty seconds, they go from being a very organized group of people to kind of scattering. There's then a police officer who rides in on a horse to to oh, help. I missed the horse. Uh, but he he helps like oh there he is. stop yeah. them from coming in and then and then after that it was pretty much over maybe maybe a hundred Jewish men were scared away by four women with their shirts off yes <laughs> now to be more respectful they were respecting their religion yes they were they were not scared. <laughs> <laughs> They, they went now, pretty credit, quick. credits the women, as I said, they yes. did discover the kryptonite. I have a question. The Eurovision Song Contest was um, involved in this in some way, right? Yes, it was. Yes. That is the Eurovision Song Competition? Yep. Eurovision? Yep. Euro meaning of or pertaining to Europe? Yes. Is Israel of or pertaining to Europe? No, no, technically... Uh, Square that circle for me, my good man. So I think that wraps it up for the brave four brave women who took off their shirts to break up a protest. Now, Aiden, do you have a uh, Wikipedia for me? I do have a wiki of the week. I mean, that one's starting to grow on me, but I think I think there's a better one. All right. Ready? Have, have a list of five on my desk by tomorrow. Yes, you can click on that. So what are you saying? I'm seeing an article titled "As Slow as po- Possible." The, sex- the next thing that I notice is a old stone church in the picture, and I'm sh- I I now see a is a musical, and then I got there, and then I got there. So it is organ slash ASLSP, which is as slow as possible, is a musical piece by John Cage. The man, the myth, the legend. I know of, I really know of only one of his other works very well, which is the song 433, which is four minutes and 33 seconds of well, it's not, so it's not specified that it has to be four minutes and thirty-three seconds of silence. The rests can last as long as they, as long as you would like, which is an important principle that we'll get to um, in as slow as possible. I see. I have, I have some some percolating ideas of what this could be, but could you enlighten me a little bit? So, as slow as possible is a musical piece by John Cage. It is intended to be played. As slowly as possible. I see the the phrase, a typical performance of the piano version lasts 20 to 70 minutes. Yes. Which is quite a discrepancy. Yeah, but... That's a large difference. So, yes, but... <sighs> Are you familiar with jam bands? I am. Yeah, so, like, a jam band's cover of, let's say... The Long and Winding Road would probably go on much longer than the Beatles version. Yes, it would. It was originally written in 1987 for organ and is adapted from 
the earlier work, ASLSP. So, so this you you this article is specifically for the organ version, but there was uh, a piano version. I think the most interesting part is the organ version. Um, if we go to performances, great. Um, it was performed on February fifth, two thousand nine. From oh, so it. I thought that that was a. It in the title it says organ and then has a sub a superscript two slash ASLSP. I thought the two was was a a footnote, but it it's everywhere. So is this organ squared? It could be. Well, okay. So we're gonna we're we're gonna get to why there's an old stone church in Germany. Um, great in the upper uh, right hand corner of this Wikipedia page in just a second. I'm in. But um, on February fifth, two thousand nine, Diane Luchase performed as slow as possible, starting at eight forty five a.m. and the performance concluded at eleven forty one p.m. Oh, great! So it was oh, a fourteen great. hour and fifty six minute performance. Oh, oh, that is painful. So, in in other words. If if it is intended to be, or, or if it is often twenty to seventy minutes, let's just say it's twenty minutes. That is going to be forty. That is going to be forty five times as long as. Did I get my math right? I am not no. the person to ask about math. Yeah, three times three. So. 20 can go into an hour three times, multiplied by 15. That is 45 times slower than the minimum, in air quotes, amount of time this song could take. Yes. That is insanity. So John Cage, in typical John Cage fashion, um, opted to omit the exact detail of how slowly the piece should be played. Yes, he did. Which is, of course, what everyone wants. The same person also gave... That was... Sorry. Are you talking Drew, about Joe, Joe Drew? Um, Never trust a man with two first names. Yes. The 14-hour and 56-minute performance... It's the longest documented performance of the piece by a single person so far, although a full 24-hour performance of the original piece, ASLSP, was given by Joe Drew. So that's on piano. During the Art Saha... Arts... Arts Aha? It, it, it was in Omaha, so it's Arts Aha. Arts Aha. As in Omaha. Got it. It's a Fe- portmanteau of arts in Omaha. I got it. Festival in 2008. Drew is also given nine and 12 hour performances of the piece. And as of September tw- 2018, was planning a 48 hour performance. I would really love to hear this song now. 48 hour performance is not a fraction of what's going on at that old stone church in Germany. What What's going on at the old stone church in Germany? So at um, St. Burkhardy Church in Halberstadt, Germany, Beginning in 2001, a performance of the piece um, began, and that performance of the piece is scheduled to end in the year 2640. What? What? Wait. This is a 639-year-long performance 
of John Cage's as slow as possible on a specially built organ. The, the organ was built specifically for the performance. It was completed in 2009. It stands in the right transept of the Berkshardy Church with the bells in the left. It only has six pipes because the instrument sounds constantly. There is a cube of acrylic glass encasing it to reduce the volume. <laughs> Does it count then? I don't know. The first chord was played from, oh, uh, the performance started on September 5th, 2001. Yikes. Six days later, they would have... Oh, jeez. I don't think they would have started. Um, with a pause lasting until February 5th, 2003, the first chord was then played... That's that signature John Cage long rest. Yes. The first chord was then played from February 5th, 2003 until July 5th, 2005. That is quite something. The chord consisting of an A above middle C, C above middle C, and the F sharp above that. Essentially an F sharp diminished chord. That's a very good job of reading musical notation that I do not know. And... What's a F hashtag? F sharp. Okay, cool. Nice. So it's played... It is not being played by a human being, thank goodness. There are weights that are holding down the organ pedals. Scientists do believe that the first human being to live 639 years has already been born. <laughs> no, they don't. And he's currently playing an organ in Germany. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the most recent note change occurred on October 5th, 2013. The next change will not occur until 2020. We should have a party. We should have a note change party. On September 5th, 2020? Yep. Uh, I don't know if it's September 5th. It, it is. Not. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's... It has the schedule... Oh, yes. The, schedule sound schedule. changes through 2030. <laughs> that's great. July 5th, 2004. July 5th, 2005. July 5th, 2006. May 5th, 2006. Uh, this is... This is a quite a quite a wonderful uh, adventure that this church has been on. I really hope that that church the best because, you know, a lot of places get demolished over the course of 300 and 639 years. Yeah, how old was Notre Dame when it went away forever? First of all, when was Notre Dame built? Notre Dame uh, was built over the course of the years 1,163 to 1,345. Yeah, so no Notre Dame is a it little... It completed in 1345. Notre Dame is a little bit less than 100 years older than the Halberstadt Cathedral. So, anything's possible. I really hope that the Halberstadt Cathedral makes it for another 639 years. I'm all about c c preserving our material culture. Make sure your calendars are prepared. September 5th, 2020. There's got to be a real big party then. 
Yeah, and that's, I think, the longest time between note changes so far. It is. Yeah. It's uh, it uh, seven years, nearly seven years, just yeah. under. And now I'm going to listen to the January 5th, 2006 note change. I will not listen to the January 5th, 2006 note change because the note change takes place at eight minutes and 36 seconds of this clip and there is no way to fast forward it. So maybe some other <laughs> lifetime I'll listen to the note change. Well, the, later tonight you'll have nine or so minutes. Not for this. <laughs> I've been tracking this for years. Yeah? Yeah. So yeah, this was first brought up to me by my high school chorus teacher. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and I assumed he was making it up. He was not. He was not. That this is quite a remarkable experiment and really the um the ability for a uh a project to last for centuries. Yeah. We'll see. And to set what I hope to God will be an unbreakable record. <laughs> for slowest playing of a song. Well long yeah, longest performance of a single yeah. song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unless you count the song of life. I, I don't. And also. I once had a song, like the, the longest song on my iPod in high school was a 36 minute long song by the Allman Brothers band. Um, and this really puts it all to shame. I, I do remember that in high school, the really long songs were cool. Yeah. But this, this, this blows it out of the water. Yeah. And now that I'm um, actually looking at the track list for the Almond Brothers, Eat a Peach, it's actually a 33-minute long song. Ooh, lot, lost three minutes. Yeah. Yeah, so that is about it for as slow as possible. Yeah. So uh, that means we have one last thing to do. All right. One final headline. I, there, I found the link. Ready? All right. Shall I? Yes, you okay. shall. Ohio middle school students under investigation after claiming to put urine, semen, in teachers' food. Lowell. They made crepes. Lowell. It made national news. Lowell. I know. Lowell, that's... Despicable. That's, yeah, that's like the, the pooper intendant. But it is real. It is very real. Under investigation, so... They... The problem is the yeah the school students claimed that they did. Okay. Who knows if they actually the middle the middle school students. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's dubious. You know it's it's like an okie cookie but with a pancake. Yeah. Um, a syrupy pancake, as it were. Oh no! All right, <laughs> that is our show for the week. I am Lowell. I am Aiden. This has been I read the news today. Oh boy, have a great week. Stay classy, San Diego.